0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Shed. Jonathan Maz here. I am really happy to have another special guest. I've got the one and only Michael Anderson in The Shed here. It's kind of like old times. Former uh, Bike Portland news editor and now researcher, senior researcher at Sightline, which is what? Explain to us, Michael, what...
1: Well, first of all, nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Bike Portland will, I, I'm sure, always remain the like <laughs> most beloved, precious... Journalism experience in my life. I just had a lovely time working for the site uh, about ten years ago, almost. Yeah, it was ten. I can't believe time's really time's flown right by. But don't say that you're still young. You could yeah. work for <laughs> you could work for all <laughs> kinds of people, oh, yes. right?
0: So you don't ever want to, you know.
1: Yeah. No, so, so actually, that brings me to Sightline. So Sightline, yeah. I don't think of as a journalism operation. Sometimes mm. people still call me a journalist, but uh, our official name is we're a sustainability think tank for the Pacific Northwest. So. Oregon, Washington, BC, Alaska, Montana, Idaho, and uh, my job is to write about some of the same things I was writing about for Bike Portland, especially on the real estate beat uh, that we ran there back in the day. But it's also very explicitly to like get policy changed. So you know, Bike Portland has always had this tension <laughs> between: are we here to change things, or are we here more to inform? Or are we here more to inspire? You know, and um, uh, so, Sightline is there more to inspire, mm. but we're also trying to inform using the same tools of journalism. Yeah. M-
0: Michael, Michael referenced the real estate beat, which was something that he wrote for Bike Portland, like a column between, I think, like 2013 and 2016. Mm hmm. Uh, you know, it basically helped pass inclusionary zoning and in Portland mm-hmm. and a bunch yeah. of other stuff. No, I'm just kidding. No, but no I think There were like probably 90 articles. I mean, you were you were into it. I was. It was it's funny because yeah, yeah. it was even clear then that that was where you were, yeah, real, yeah, out, yeah. You were really passionate about that.
1: But yeah, I, think, I was so course, scared that you weren't going to approve <laughs> it. And you were like, oh, yeah, of course. Obviously, people need to live closer to each other to bike places. That makes sense. People, I'm going to go, I'm going to share some of the links because I'm I'm just like
0: so proud of the work you did on that because I think it's some of our best stuff we've ever done. You were able to write about like, missing middle housing micro all kinds of trends in like the real estate business that were related related to whether or not we could build enough housing whether it would be affordable what it meant to like the ideas of proximity and all those related land use things and there'd be like 300 comments like Mm -hmm. there's some of the most consistently heavily engaged stories we've ever done that's interesting housing policy i just thought that was a real testament yeah. Not as much to the policy, although it, I think it is very engaging in general and people love talking about housing. But the way you approached it and the way you wrote was so good and accessible to people. Thank you so much. So I'm glad that you're now doing that in a more official capacity at a think tank. <laughs> Instead of trying just to some, sneak
1: it around the edges of a journalism, <laughs> yeah, respectable biking Exactly. Bike. Wait, I was yeah. going to say at a, not at a non-respectable... Right, uh, right, right,
0: right, right. I love the word think tank. And that, that, I mean, even, even on, on the about page in Sightline, it says think tank. I don't know why I feel like that's a word that... There may be haters that may try to say, oh, but it's just a think tank, as if it's a bad thing. Oh, really? I, I think that's an awesome term. Huh.
1: Yeah, great. I I, well, <laughs> w- when I'm being self-deprecating, I'm like, we're, we're a blog. We're a blog with a day job. That's all we are. So, okay. Yeah. Hey, the word blog is fine now. It's Yeah, it's yeah come that's back. true. It's the sweet.
0: pendulum has swung back. All right. So I, I even use right. it myself now. You know, really? So yeah, it's all good. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I should say about having Michael over today. He didn't know he was coming over until like a couple of hours ago. <laughs> this
1: is how stupid a date I am. Despite
0: appearances. I know that like, if you look at bike Portland, you must think everything's really super organized, right? Yeah, right. But, you know, yeah, I just basically called him over and was like, hey, would you mind swinging over? We can chat. You know, on, on this Friday thing, I like to just have a casual banter or whatever. So I was thinking all these things we could catch up on. You know, like how how's your son doing? Is he biking with you? And then I was like reading some of the replies on on Twitter after I posted it, and then thinking about your work, and I'm like, "Gosh, if I've got him in here, we kind of we kind of have to talk about housing and policy stuff." So I'm hoping that we can. I would love to do a little bit of both. So, tell me about how how old your son now?
1: Oh yeah, Uh, he is seven, and I know this. So like, he was born the month after I left Bike Portland because I couldn't have two children simultaneously was what I thought about at the time. Oh, yeah. Like the bike Portland was so all encompassing uh, that uh, I felt like I couldn't have done them both justice. So I had to choose my son. Sorry about that. Man. But um, he's doing great. He bikes to school almost every day. And um, <laughs> what kind of bike is he on? Like a little. Yeah. He's little, on a, I think it's a frog. How he he fun. was on. Yeah. Oh, he, had I an, he had an he had an Isla bike and then it got stolen uh, from our back porch and that and now we lock it up. Should have done that before. But he and two of our neighbors bike to Wrigler, just sort of a few blocks away every morning. And you live in,
0: uh, you're living in Cully. And you live like in a shared housing. How's that going? There's like a shared housing thing.
1: Yeah, it's a co housing community of like 23, mostly duplexes, triplexes around a couple courtyards developed in Cully neighborhood and a couple of the big lots there. And uh, it's just a dream. I love it. And everybody's, you know, comes to it in their own way. But, I I think it's a perfect example of the sort of like thing that low car life makes possible because the whole development wouldn't have penciled if there had been demand for more than uh, twenty parking spaces in these twenty three hmm. homes. But as it is, they the developer couldn't actually sell three of the parking spaces because not enough people wanted to buy them. Uh, we there are enough people without you know one car per household and no cars per household. And as a result, we all have this community, we live together. So it's a perfect example of what we were trying to get at with a real estate beat of like this biking and Mm -hmm. everything else unlocks all these other human connections. Yeah, I love that. And I was thinking
0: that I wonder if in in your day job, you've had people that may try to criticize your work by saying... Yeah, that sounds great in theory, but who wants to live with a bunch of other people in a place where you can't have your own car parking spot and then mm-hmm. you're like, you know, really r- smaller houses and
1: blah, blah, blah. And you're like, um... <laughs> I do. I kind of I do. do live yes. like that. Right, exactly. Awesome. <laughs> I, took, I went outside my house and I took a picture once and somebody tweeted something like that at me one time. Oh, okay, and, good. Sorry. And I was like, it looks like this. And then the guy was like... Exactly. <laughs> I hate it. That looks terrible. And I was like, this like... is literally a picture of paradise to me. So like people are different. And so yeah. one of the way I think about my, my, my work at Sightline is that we are not trying to get everybody to live closer to each other. What we want as a society is to let everybody who wants to live closer to each other and in so doing cut their energy use in half, basically. Should get to do so. We desperately need that to happen because otherwise our electric bills are going to keep going up Mm -hmm. and the world is going to keep being destroyed by pollution and everything else. And like, it's not that everybody is ever going to want to live closer to each other. There are people that like to live closer to each other than I do, right? But to the extent that it is possible to get people to do so, then we should let people do so. And we have so many rules in local law, state law, everything else that make it either Illegal or overly expensive to make that choice to live closer to each other. And so my job at Sightline is basically to try and call attention to that fact and say, like, this is a really stupid set of rules that are forcing people to live further from each other, to be disconnected from each other socially, to use more energy, use more money than they really need to or than they really want to. Um, So it's a way of like a lot of environmentalism is like getting people to do things they don't want to do. Whereas I feel like with bike advocacy and housing advocacy, a lot of it is actually letting people live the way they want to. Right. And so that's really joyful.
0: Yeah. You do so much of that so well in, in the work you do. I feel like you're just like, you're teeing up each one of these things and just taking swings at them and, and you're explaining to people. I, I love how you frame it in terms of like, it's actually popular, everyone. And like, mm-hmm. if you don't come at it with less rhetoric about us and them and all this stuff, you're just like presenting, well, I think most people want to save money. Right. most people want to feel good about. Is that a little Mike Anderson impression impact. you just did there?
1: <laughs> I am known for,
0: I am actually known for uh, adopting the, the tics and mannerisms of people in the room. And my wife's always told me I have to be really careful about that. Mm. When I was little, I used to want to be an impressionist, but I digress. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. I, I digress. I've heard this um, before. Yeah. I don't do it as much as I used to, but um, probably cause I'm more, uh, con- I'm more uh, worried about, hmm. you know, offending people than I used to be when I was in my twenties. No offense taken here. <laughs> so, but anyway, I was saying, um, you know, uh, I really think that's that's really the thing that I that I really appreciate kind of about the work that you do, and it's so interesting. And and I guess any good advocate can learn from that is talking about things in simpler terms, uh, especially with housing. I think, and just making uh, proposals to people or, or uh, propositions of like, uh, you know, these things are actually things you probably want. And th- did you know that? the government is preventing you from accessing these, mm-hmm. these joyful things. Yeah. I remember when I thought it was really interesting how, and the way you framed one of these articles that was really big on bike Portland back, you know, when you were doing the real estate beat, which is basically like, do you remember the headline? It was something like these houses are illegal in Portland yep. or something yep. like yep. that. Yep. And I was like, it was all just new to me. It was, and I think a lot of people hadn't even heard the term of, you know, the missing middle. And then the idea that it wasn't that we just weren't choosing to build these. It was like legally not Mm -hmm.
1: allowed. Right. And I feel like you spent the last
0: 10 years or so just identifying these things. That was a pedal palooza
1: ride led by Eli Spivak, who is Mm -hmm. now the guy who built the development that I live in and is my neighbor across the street. And uh, so he spread that gospel of really thinking about like, no, these duplexes, There are thousands of them right in front of our eyes, and yet they're illegal to build now. And they're in these neighborhoods like Buckman, where everything is fine. And actually, it's one of the most income diverse parts of town. And uh, we don't have to be this way. We don't have to make it illegal to live next to each other. Okay. So I wonder if you feel kind of like I do around
0: the bicycling issue, which is like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if you would have told me in 2024 we would be where we are, I would have laughed at you and thought you were negative person and and you know I would have just probably scoffed and I was so high and mighty thinking that we were going to rule the world with bikes that I wouldn't have paid too much attention. I'm a lot humbler now uh because you know that vision didn't really pan out at least as quickly as I'd hoped and I think a lot of other people had hoped. And thinking about a lot of the housing initiatives and policies that uh, I was looking at I think in 2013 we actually did a podcast episode, the real estate episode on the Bike Portland podcast uh, that we started in 2013 and then it went dormant for many years. But we did a real estate episode in there and I remember in the write-up of it or one of the write-ups around that time, we were with a list like five different initiatives going on in Portland like simultaneously. Some were happening at Bureau of Planning and Sustainability uh, in other places, some were at the state level, whatever. But so just to get back to my my point is like, do you feel like, how have we done in the last 10 years on abundant housing? So it's this is a two-part thing, a volume of housing. And it's related, but also, is it affordable or not? Um you know, what is it been is it been like bicycling where there was all this energy and momentum? We passed these policies, but then reality snuck in and it's plateaued, or where where are things at?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think about it a lot, actually. Uh, having been through the biking movement, you know, I was working basically in the biking movement uh, for both you and for people for bikes at the time uh, and and then there was clearly like a wave of optimism nationally and excitement and funding and everything else. Uh, and then that did ebb. And I think a lot about the fact that, like, I think the housing movement actually is at one of those peaks right now, at least what, you know, my part of the housing movement, you know, the Yimby movement, some people call it. I just usually say pro housing, where there's a lot of attention. There's more funding than there has been. There's more. Narrative energy, and I think there's electeds like Tina Kotek, the governor, right now, and the, even the Portland City Council, who's not like a boat rocking crew for the most part, but are do have this consensus that something needs to be changed on housing, even if they don't know, really know what it is. So, right now, I feel like the challenge is to capitalize on that energy, uh, and get as much done while we can because not everybody, you know, and I'm like on the older side of this housing scene and and I feel like I need to tell the young people like this is not going to last we don't have forever we need to get stuff done while we can
0: yeah well on that note about being older and having new people coming in that a lot of them really want to help they want to continue these changes can you bring those folks in and just give me kind of a summary of, of where things are at or, or let them know where where, where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, someone mentioned today when I said I was going to have you on, yeah, have them talk about the connection between biking and housing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hear that and I'm like, whew, okay, we've we've published over right. we've hundreds of articles <laughs> about send you a few links. about that, that right. topic, right? Yeah. But then I realized that, you know, obviously everybody doesn't have the experience right. of staring at this website their whole right. life like I have. <laughs> we got to bring, people need to know, yeah. but- where do things stand right now with housing Mm -hmm. in Portland? And then after that, I'll ask you kind of for its direct links to transportation, but Mm -hmm. help people get up to speed really quickly if you can on kind of where we're at in Portland right now with the housing questions
1: of affordability and and how much there is. How how far can I go back? Can I go back to 1924? (laughs) Okay. So 1924, Portland passes by popular vote, a zoning ordinance or not an ordinance, but I think it lets us create zoning ordinances. It's like a list of things you're Allowed to build, and therefore, implicitly, a list of things you're not allowed to build on any given piece of land. Did you say 1924? All mm-hmm. All right. Okay. You're going for it. Do yeah. It. That's right. 100 years ago. 100 years ago this year. Okay. Exactly. And in the decades that followed, this tool, zoning, which a lot of people associate with like making it so you don't have to live next to a factory, which is all to the good, but not really its original intent. Because in the next 20, 30 years, it was used largely to say, these are the rich neighborhoods of town, and we're not allowed to, you're not allowed to build, nobody's allowed to build homes that are attached to each other in these neighborhoods. Because when you share walls and roofs and land, that's the fastest way to make a building less expensive to build, and therefore less expensive to rent, and therefore less expensive to live in. And if we forbid anybody from sharing walls, roofs, Land, that is, we ban apartment buildings, we ban fourplexes, we even ban duplexes from these elite parts of town, like your Laurelhursts, your Eastmorelands, your Alameda's, overlook. Then you basically can't live there unless you can afford a whole parcel with a yard and so on. Um, that's not to say it's bad to have a yard, right? Or unpleasant. A lot of people want one, but not everybody can afford one. And if you say nobody in, can live in this neighborhood without, without having one, creating segregation which is not coincidental so over the course of the next 60 years after that we gradually spread to impose these bans over all of portland and this happened in every major city in north america or at least the u.s and canada but a lot of mexico as well um and uh, the, these laws that said you can't build attached housing in certain areas became more and more widespread because everybody wants to be like East Morland, right? Oh, that's where the rich people live. I want to be a rich person. I want my neighborhood to be priced like the rich people's houses. And so there's a lot of pressure to do so. And so it gradually spread. And the effect of that overall, of course, is that then it's more expensive to build housing and therefore less of it can be built and, specifically, it can't be close to other things. And so the way we built cities for thousands of years was suddenly impossible, illegal. And basically in the 1920s through 50s, we built the last major me- metropolitan areas in the United States, like Phoenix, and that was it, and we walked away. And we've never built a major metro area since because it's been illegal because of zoning. So Portland, which came, which came into its own in the first like 20 years of the 20th century, has been sort of coasting off of that burst of pre-zoning momentum ever since that's like, what, like like the streetcar neighborhoods and all that stuff yeah exactly so in the first 20 years of the 21st century there was increasing attention on this problem nationally and locally and portland was one of the leaders i would say in trying to reverse that and so in 20 19, 2020 The city and the state both passed laws saying you can't ban fourplexes. The first four units have to be legal on any lot in the bigger cities, and like Portland. So, Portland, I I was involved in some of that work, both first writing about it and then advocating for it. And um, so, as a result, when you are going around Portland today, you can see lots of these fourplex projects popping up here and there. And uh, generally, they cost something like. $300,000 Three hundred to $400,000 per unit, which is not cheap, but it's way cheaper than a newly built home before this was allowed. And there are four of them. So that's soaking up those four households who aren't bidding against somebody else who could only afford a $250,000 home or whatever. So on down the line, because everybody pushes the last next person out of their home when they need to look for a place. So it's, it's like it's a tragic situation that leads all of us to be complicit in this cruel game of musical chairs and the only way out of it is to build more homes build enough for everybody who wants to live there uh so portland did this big thing like 5 years ago that did this oregon passed a law that said at the state level you have to do this and then portland implemented a really i think pretty progressive version of that law and uh and then we were all very proud of ourselves we gave ourselves a portland high five which is a back slap and uh then we were like okay problem solved right Housing is sort of done. And I don't think that was conscious or deliberate, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but there was a sense, I would say, in the year or two after that, that like, this is a huge thing that we did. We should be really proud of it. And it gave us a sense of direction and argument and focus for several years. But it's really a small piece of the puzzle. Like we're talking about several hundred homes per year in a city of 600,000 people. Uh, not to mention all the burbs and so on beyond, which don't have as good of versions of that fourplex legalization because they're still requiring parking spaces for every home or whatever mm-hmm. right? in some cases. So we've been working both at the state and local levels to try and make that better, but also to figure out what is the next step? What are the other things we also need to do to make sure that we can bring down the costs and remove the barriers to living closer to each other? So I can talk about that too, but that's the, my like broad sweep thanks for going back in time with me
0: yeah no that's good because it, it really was the zoning thing and we just sat there and spent you know all those year, all those decades not building mm-hmm. you know not putting people close together which is like i love how you said the That's how we built cities forever. That's how cities were successful. And then we just stopped because of zoning. And I guess people didn't want to be next to other people that weren't as rich as them or didn't want to see. And there are
1: exceptions like the Pearl District, for example. A lot of people think about the Pearl District. Portland's famously successful in its goals of turning this old industrial district into like a mixed-use, mixed-income neighborhood. Yeah. And, uh, And that's like the main way since zoning became so widespread was to have it like... Really carefully planned deals with a few landowners who had a lot of political power, who were going to make a lot of money for getting their particular part of town to be upzoned, i.e., allow yeah, apartment right, buildings, right, and then get public resources like a streetcar going there, right. And that's, I mean, that's fine. I don't think that's a hugely problem, but like, it certainly opens itself up to the risks of corruption, to the risks of just making the wrong choice. Like, what if people don't want to live there, and also, um. It's pretty narrow and like you can only do so much of that so fast when you have to assign like I bet there were 100 people who spent 10 years at the city of Portland working on making the Pearl District happen. That's a pretty good investment when you think about the public revenue the Pearl District brings into the city today, but it's not something we can replicate fast enough to create a metropolis the way that Portland was built in the first 20 years of the 20th century.
0: Right. 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 I mean, the yellow line went up interstate Avenue Mm -hmm. in what 1990, late nineties, early early aughts, early aughts. Yeah. And it's nowhere near like the Pearl. It's still taking time to develop. There's still lots of openings and there's still lots of construction, but similar idea where they, they said we're building a dedicated transit line and we're going to go make a bunch of deals and develop this, but that's separate from housing policy more broadly of like, Putting homes everywhere, legalizing things on a larger scale. Yeah.
1: yeah, and it's not a coincidence that the yellow line was going in on Interstate Avenue, next to the interstate, like three blocks from the freeway, through the formerly black neighborhood, uh, and uh, formerly majority black. Plenty of black people there still. But and then we were, oh, we're legalizing apartment buildings along the transit line, which is cool, but also just so happens to be next to the freeway and through the disempowered neighborhood, right? So like the places like. You know, southeast Lincoln Avenue in Richmond, um, where very nice places to live as well. They're pretty much the same distance from downtown and a lot of assets, but a uh, much richer place. Does not have apartment buildings mm-hmm. allowed, even though it's right next to the bus line. A few was, minutes walk from the bus line.
0: Yeah, such mixed feelings when I walk around the interstate corridor. I'm like simultaneously so excited. It's really amazing. To see the rate of change over. The, of course, I, I don't have a house there. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I get that there's a lot of trauma probably with that change. But I mean, I, I've got p- people that live, I know people that lived over there, and you know, developers literally come to their front door and say, How much do you want for your house? And right. they can choose to stay or not. Right. Um, but it's a rapid, rapid change, and that's right. exciting. To get to the connection to biking, you know, I think despite all the work on housing and what we have done, a lot of people listening to this are just like well, housing's still really expensive in Portland. Mm-hmm. Structurally, it's still problematic. Right? Mm-hmm. We're not done. There's still, a lot, there's still a lot of work to do. And then I've been going around saying and talking about the cycling decline, I've been talking about housing a little bit and saying that the fact that it's gotten more expensive in the inner core dramatically in the last 10, 15 years, right? That had something to do with fewer people biking.
1: Yeah. Am I right in saying that? I once had a dream to do a Real Estate Beat article Mapping the origins and destinations of every bike move. Oh, nice! Have you read right. that? Thought was about literally that? a tangent. So, like, exodus. you know, back when when you and I were coming up <laughs> yes. in biking in Portland, like yeah. it was a weekend every weekend or almost in the summer. Right. There would be one or two people <laughs> moving by bike, and like uh, a few heroes like Steph Routh would show up and help you move your stuff, yeah. and then you would help Steph move her stuff, like. I remember thinking in the years when it was happening, like I am moving a lot of people from the inner bikeable neighborhoods to the marginally bikeable neighborhoods. And I wonder if this is happening to other people who just don't happen to be part of this scene, but still get around by bike. And what effect is that going to have on the politics of this? When not only the people who can afford, who are like in biking because it's cheap are being priced out, but like the culture of bike fun is also being priced out that was such a huge part of getting portland's bike momentum politically going. yeah
0: i don't know if we'll ever be able to really map or determine that or research it but yeah yeah i think roger geller from pbot the Peabot bike planner he did some looking at move zip code moving and stuff and yeah he, he found that there was no there was no connection to the idea that more bike oriented people leaving had anything to do with it but i don't know hmm. how robust Okay. his his little survey or research of it was. But you know, I, you know how this is always the fun thing about working with you Michael is that I'm just totally anecdotal narrative kind of person mm-hmm. and you're like the right, in right. a lot of ways the opposite, right? Yeah. I'm just like, oh, it doesn't I got this hunch. So I think I'm just going to go with that." And you're like, "Well, what do the numbers say?" So, right, right. But, but you know, come on, like you were saying how those people moving out in the move by bikes, right? Mhm. So that was a piece of it. Is they're going to less bikeable places and mm-hmm. they're leaving behind their more bikeable places in the inner neighborhoods. But I think, right, am I right in saying another piece of that is the people that moved to, in to replace them. Mm-hmm. Not as bikey. Not as bikey. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so they're less likely to ride. And then I go to my next thing in that whole narrative of saying, we messed up. Mm-hmm. Because if we were doing what we should have done with the built environment, mm-hmm. transit lines, bus lines, mm-hmm. bike protected mm-hmm. bike lanes, we would have been able to
1: educate and you know, inculcate those people immediately. Right. Just like in and they Copenhagen would have or whatever, the, yeah. the rich Copenhageners who, if they happen to live in the close in neighborhoods, of course they bike because that's the best yeah. way to do it.
0: Yeah. And it reminds me of the whole, no, you know, the whole thing we went through 10 years or so ago of like all the controversy around building apartments with no car parking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. This huge political, all in the headlines. Right. And I, I think it's, it's also in that same moment where, boy, we, I feel like we missed an opportunity to have the built environment make people react to those conditions in a certain way that mm-hmm. and so they looked around and they're like oh I've, I've heard of the bike culture here that must have been fun anyway i'm mm-hmm. gonna get in my car <laughs>
1: because i'm not riding on these streets right. you know like i think that's and that's basically where we are yeah yeah you know, right now i mean it's, it's not so bad i was I, I still think about the contrast to, i was just in austin for a few days and mm. austin's an exciting city in many ways but it's and they've got quite a bit of infrastructure in the last 10 years they've been making a lot of projects happen but it is not as bikey as portland people do not ride bikes as much as they do here even today yeah yeah i i I think that some of it is intangible is i'm looking at your picture of the sprockets and (laughs) like how how who could not be excited about biking after seeing the sprockets perform right
0: but but even the sprockets i mean that's that's an example so this is a a a mini bike dance team that Mm -hmm. portland used to have you. you could they'd go to an event they were they were all pink they were just wonderful and it was so fun to watch and be a part of and inspirational and it got everybody excited but the reason why housing in in like density i don't know if is that a
1: bad word i don't use the word density actually yeah that's okay
0: educate me what what should i say i think i say proximity okay the idea that the idea of proximity is so important for biking and even bike culture because it's a basic thing of like uh how long it takes you to get somewhere. I don't know if that's obvious, but mm-hmm. should I even have to say that? But I don't know if people really fully understand that if you're, maybe you're newer to this, it's like, I get annoyed if I have to go out of my way two blocks on a neighborhood greenway <laughs> and right. I'm ready to, I'm ready to fire off a text to somebody at Peabot. Like, why, why, yeah. we, like, that's annoying, right? Like, yeah. it's so disrespectful. Right. So and now, because, you know, once you get into this stuff, you can't unsee it. Like when I'm walking my, my boy to school, just a couple blocks away, I'm just like, Part of me, a small part, you know, is like underneath I'm the seething at like all the single family homes I'm walking past mm-hmm. because each one represents ten or fifteen seconds of my time where mm-hmm. if we were all stacked up on top of each other, right with a nice big courtyard, right. I'd already be I'd be done. That's right. The walk would be half the yeah. the distance. So You know, the sprockets riding around on their little pink bikes, those bikes aren't that comfortable to ride. (laughs) That's right. especially as as they got older. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're not biking to a sprocket gig three miles away. That's right. You're just not. That's right. So it's a matter of geometry and, and like, space, right? Like, how close can your sprockets gig be? That's like the sprocket test. Yep. Yep. You know, your city's gonna be great if people can do more cool stuff like that within shorter distances because you know.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite articles I did for Bike Portland was about differences in trip lengths for uh cities in the Netherlands versus the United States. I got this data set from uh uh my friend Nathan in Austin about uh how far people's bike trips go and they're versus their walking trips versus transit Mm. trips in these different countries. And, um, in the Netherlands, basically if you're going more than two miles, you're not going on a bike. Wow. The difference is that in the Netherlands, everything you need is within two miles or not everything, but most things you need are usually within two miles. And so, yeah, the bike's the best way for that sort of a trip, a mile or two. I can do that. Uh, at least if the streets are nice and there are other people with me. Yeah. I,
0: I'm trying to, I'm really trying to stay positive about Portland these days. I think there's enough negativity out there, but I have to say, listening to that podcast from 2013 with you and Lillian, and you were just expressing so much excitement about Green hmm. Zebra Grocery Store. <laughs> yeah. This cool startup. Yeah. It's going to revolutionize grocery oh, stores, God. you know? Oh, I'm sorry. And the idea was like small, fresh food. It was like yeah. the quality of, you know, a nice grocery store, fresh food. But then in the small footprint of like a plaid pantry or something, convenience store, that was the goal. Oh, man. And now I I ride around and I see, I know of at least two of those that were within my proximity of my house that are now
1: closed. Right. Um, You know, so that's just to say that. And this isn't due to the neighborhood being in any decline in particular. It's due to the fact that Green Zebra just didn't work as a business. uh, Right.
0: Well, I mean, I think it speaks to like larger stories about Portland and I'm hearing little stories about that around town. Uh, just, you know, we're trying to get the biking numbers back up, but they're not quite where they were back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, right. um, you know, that is to say that like, yeah, there's, there's still a lot of work to do on these things. It doesn't mean that they're the wrong things or the wrong ideas. Obviously you're, you would nod your head very strongly on that, but you know, so is there something bringing it sort of more recent? Are there legislative initiatives right now? Is there anything in Salem uh, around housing that you had your eye on that mm-hmm. even was proposed? I mean, I noticed, I know that it's a short session, not everything. Yeah. You know, had time to to really get vetted out. But was there anything in Salem this year, housing-wise, that you had your eyes on?
1: Yeah, you and some listeners probably caught wind of this bill from uh, Governor Kotek that did a bunch of things. Um, and sadly, basically none of them is legalize apartment buildings in more places which in my opinion is what we need to do i've been doing a project lately looking at the amount of residential land in various oregon cities where you're allowed to build just a normal four-story apartment building like very basic wood frame not looming over the neighborhood not Mm -hmm. not a skyscraper just a freaking four-story apartment building that has some parking spaces tucked underneath probably uh but not a whole parking lot Cause I would take a lot of space and it is a vanishingly small amount of our residential land in almost every city. So in Portland, it's something that is between 15 and 20% of residential land. That is the highest in the Portland Metro area, highest ratio. Oregon city follows that like 15% or so. And then you get down to more than half the cities have none at all. Like Lake Oswego, Tualatin, uh, a bunch of them zero percent of land allow a building like that by right and i don't know what the right number is like it probably shouldn't be a hundred percent of land mm-hmm. but like i mean i think it should be actually but like that's <laughs> reasonable i will compromise okay. i will say not everybody needs to <laughs> yeah. live next to a land that could potentially have a four story apartment building compromise, and yes yeah yes it should be legal on like more than zero yeah. percent of a city's land and uh so i think that you asked about current things going on there's a law that was passed last year the the state said if you're missing your housing production targets we've set these housing production targets for every larger city in the state uh based on economic calculations and a bunch of good stuff and i think it's pretty persuasive this is how much you need to be building not just to keep up with population so that we don't have future price spikes but to make up for past underproduction so that we can actually house the people that we see every day who don't have homes, right? Uh, and just save everybody money because that's the, the source of this overpriced housing is the fact that we have been underproducing for 20 years. Mm. So um, this law said if you miss those targets, then the state will evaluate whether you're doing everything you can to meet those targets. And if you are and you're still not making the tar- hitting the targets, that's fine. Cool. No harm, no foul, or at least there's nothing you can do about it. We, we're going to accept that, right? But if you aren't doing everything you can, mm. then you have to change that. The state has not fully defined that question of what is everything you can mm-hmm. reasonably be expected to do. I would like it to say one of the things that you can be reasonably expected to do is to zone at least one-fifth of the residential land to allow four-story apartment buildings. and ideally, I would say, and that needs to be a certain distance from freeways, and Mm -hmm. it shouldn't just be in the poor neighborhood, and so on. It shouldn't just be on the outskirts of town. And I think it's within the state's power to do that. The state is currently considering what those rules are going to be looking like. By the end of this year, it'll come out with those rules. And so the biggest thing I'm working on right now in my day job at Sightline is to try and bring people to participate in that process to say, look, this needs to change. This is, it it would not be okay for us to have all these targets, all these ambitious goals, make all these promises, and then not require cities to change when they're failing to produce. Is
0: that, you mentioned four floors. Mm -hmm. Is that related to the campaign by Portland, Portland neighbors welcome the four floors and corner stores?
1: uh, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of my, uh, yeah. Symmetry. I mean that you're Yeah, yeah. so with I'm, that, right? I'm also a volunteer for Portland Neighbors Welcome, okay. which is a housing advocacy group uh that came together around that fourplex legalization campaign. Right and okay our current campaign is to allow four floors and corner stores throughout the inner east side neighborhoods. Uh so not just Ooh. Buckman where it used to be legal hmm. and where it is quite diverse, but like Richmond, uh a little bit further out, but still not far from the middle of everything, right It's quite a walkable place next to lots of commerce and frequent buses north and south and lots of bikeways. and yet it's illegal to build a four-story apartment building there and we're saying, no, it shouldn't be. we should change that.
0: Are there any good arguments to keep those old laws on the books or are they just vestiges of sort of like that old segregationist sort of like elitist thing that you know so much of our cities were built on?
1: You'll hear a lot of people say that the infrastructure couldn't support it and the city is studying that. Now that's what impact fees are for. You're supposed to, if you need a bigger pipe, you can build a bigger pipe. And right. actually, we're allowed to charge the developers for that, and we should. That's fine. Uh, the uh, you'll hear people say, "Oh, the streets can't support it." Well, I think we have an answer for that. Yeah. Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. Um. Right. But uh, you know, it's not nothing. We should be measuring that. I, I'm not sure we should. That's a reason to forbid housing from existing. But we should be saying, like, yeah, this is gonna create a lot more demand for travel. So maybe we should be building some more bike lanes to make sure that that's not all clogging up the streets. I think there are also, I will say legitimate feelings by people who don't want the, who think that neighborhood is really nice mm. right now, a neighborhood that where it's illegal to build apartment buildings, so Laurelhurst, for example. Nice. That very word. nice neighborhood. It's a nice neighborhood. Right. And I, you know, I can't, I can't tell them they don't, it, it's not right. Sure. Like if they like it, I respect that. Yeah. Um, so then the question is, is keeping that neighborhood physically similar worth the various costs of that, which are over time, fewer and fewer people, nor like normal people can afford to be in that <laughs> nice of a neighborhood. Uh, and, um, you know, carbon emissions going up and people living in the former farmland on the edge of town instead or whatever. Um, um, the uh, It limits the tax revenue of the city. There are all sorts of things. It mm. prevents you from mm. having the sort of small businesses that you can walk to in the area. Anyway, I'm of the opinion that gradually scattering a few small apartment buildings through Laurelhurst would actually make it better and nicer. So not everybody agrees on that, but I'm happy to make the case that it would. What's so appealing about that to you? I think it's great to have things and people within walking distance people are annoying like people are annoying and people are awesome and so like it's ups and downs but i generally i think people are more good than bad and it's better than it is annoying to live near other people and the cool things they do yeah and the cool things they do like the i always think about it like in
0: terms of the possibilities yeah it's like you could have someone move into your neighborhood that like knows everything about the weirdest little side passion that you have absolutely and like, whoa yeah yeah That's like a new person. It's like, I don't know, it's like going away to summer camp and you're stuck for two weeks with like one pool of people to connect. I used to go to music camp every year. Right. And it'd be like, okay, so are are the guys cool? Are there any girls I think are cute? Whatever, you know. Right, right, right. So that you're stuck. If you're in a neighborhood and you're not going to grow your neighborhood, (laughs) that's it. You're basically a Maybe summer camp is not a good example because maybe people have fond memories of it. I don't know. But like the idea of infusing it with more interestingness Mm -hmm. to me is like the best way to, Mm-hmm. to think about that yeah it'd be awesome if there were more basketball coaches for my kids and right. like right. other people to do cool stuff and start cool new businesses and go to the park and you know who wants to go to a park and there's no people there 100 percent. you know that's kind of how i think of it so it's hard it's really hard for me to have sympathy for for people that are wanting to keep their neighborhood quote unquote nice which mm-hmm. that word is really like yeah. triggering for me it's yeah, like yeah. yeah nice for you so yeah as i say that as i live you know in a home with the yard sure detached from other homes like i said that's you not
1: know, that's not like, like inherently bad right it's just that like it should be a choice not a necessity or a mandate if you I, want to live in a certain neighborhood i really loved uh i think it was enrique
0: penulosa mm-hmm. he came here one time and i didn't i feel like the story didn't get enough attention maybe i didn't write it right or something but every time i can i try to bring it up and he I went, remember he went downtown and gave us a presentation i forgot what he was what he's here for mm-hmm. some kind of some kind of livable cities conference yeah, or yeah. something and he basically said we should just demolish all of Portland's <laughs> old suburbs. I mean, we're yeah. in an old suburb. I don't know if people want to hear this, but all these inner neighborhoods are essentially suburbs. in the old days, this is where you move to get away from everybody else. And right. live. You know, that's what you're living in if you're two, three miles from town. I don't care how cool you think you are and that you want to hate on the suburbs. You're in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And Penny Losa was like, those should all just be completely demolished. <laughs> <we should> make- <laughs> you're over here worried that like this is what people will take away. This is not what housing pro housing people believe folks this is just one idea but yeah and you know to me it was kind of appealing is like i would but what you would get instead of that are these huge corridors of green space Mm -hmm. and like basically parks Mm -hmm. you know like in a hub and spoke thing from downtown just like park colonnades and I'm like oh that's Mm -hmm. like imagine the park blocks Mm -hmm. spiraling out from downtown totally well you need you need space to do that space that's taken up now by these large footprint homes that's right there's more efficient ways for people to live Anyway, so I think that's another important thing to talk about, too, about it is, like, what you can gain by having more housing and proximity is, like, more, more community space, more public space. Yeah. I mean, I, I ride every Wednesday. I ride over to Happy Hour. And one of the reasons why I really want to keep it there is because of the plaza that we have. Yeah. That big open space that yeah. we're able just to kind of, like, hang out in in the summertime. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if everybody demands more space to live, we have fewer spaces like that to to hang out and have happy hours in. Yeah, And it was an idea of like, well, maybe at the one year anniversary, I'll switch the location You know, this April will be one year since we did happy hour. And I was like, man, there's so few of those public plazas that have like a nice pub right on each, on each right, side, right. actually. Yeah. Uh, so it's limiting, but
1: I'm um, anyway. not to mention the fact that like, so you bought this house, what? Oh, four or something. Yeah. 20- so, 24. uh, you know, so the, the future Jonathan Moss could not afford to buy this house. On the budget you came in with, it's and they uh, came in with no budget, right? Exactly, and then like yeah. not only that, but have enough uh, of a you know freedom well, in your life to start a to start a website.
0: Absolutely, I mean, without yeah, without the without the luck I had in real estate. Let's say right, I and mean, like I'm not a real estate baron, but you kind of are an American you know, everybody in American it makes cities. us all barons. We're it, basically all little, barons, little,
1: little barons, whether we win or lose. Exactly, and the um part of the reason that this, this house has risen in market value since then is because of the shortage of homes in general. And if there were more apartment buildings, then the low density homes would also be less expensive and less exclusive because people who want to live in other locations would be able to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What do you want people to, what do you want people to take away? What if, what if people are listening to this that are, you know, maybe more bicycle oriented than your usual, Audience, mm-hmm. what what what
1: do you want them to know about housing policy? I think most bike people have an intuitive sense of the fact that transportation and housing are really closely associated, and you can't uh, do one without also thinking about the other. I think the key idea that I'm trying to communicate lately is that we cannot change the status quo without changing the status quo. The the source of the cost of housing is all. The rules that we put around housing, and not all those rules are bad. Some of those rules are good. Like you should be able to enter a building in a wheelchair without an assistant. But that's not free. It's not free, or require compliance with the Fair Housing Act. And so we all pay for that, and maybe that's fine. But what we need to do is figure out what are the least bad rules to get rid of. And the top of my list, Least bad rules are getting rid of the mandate that you're not allowed to share walls, not allowed to share roofs, not allowed to share kitchens uh, in many cases. And, uh, beyond that, there's a zillion little rules, but every little additional rule we add adds a little bit more cost. So we had a fight about bike parking, mandatory bike parking last year. And I totally get the argument that we need good bike parking to have a good bikeable city. And it's just a trade-off. Like, every little rule we make adds a little bit of cost. And No one rule is the deal-breaker, but they all add up, and so we got to figure out which are the least bad ones, and we got to have an argument about it. Okay. speaking of arguments, I'm not going to let you get out of here without talking a little bit about politics. Mm. I want to ask
0: you who you like in the mayor's race or anything like that out of respect for your day job and other things. <laughs> I'm but, off the clock starting now. Oh, okay, okay. okay. well, who yes. do you like for mayor? <laughs> who... Uh,
1: uh, so I mean, who, who do you think for mayor wise right, right now? Yeah. Right now, Rubio's got my vote. Okay, um, that is not like the most enthusiastic vote I've ever cast. Uh, I honestly would love to understand better what uh, her vision is. I feel like we've had her in office for some years, and I really have never heard what she really wants. And um, she's not the first Portland politician that's like that. A lot of them have been mm. in my time, but uh, yeah, that's my take speaking personally just, yeah. Uh, yeah
0: okay yeah no good yeah. good disclaimer. not for sightline absolutely disclaimer um what do you think in general about the change in government uh, structure and all the new council members and just that and how that might change the kind of transportation and housing and, and policy stuff that you and i care a lot about
1: yeah i think it could be good could be bad that's my <laughs> that's the hot take oh, the so the worst case scenario <laughs> is that we have a bunch of uh noobs who don't know what they're doing and they're led around by the nose by the staff and mm. and or they're led in circles by one another the best case scenario is that they're not just noobs uh they're also like people with a new vision and a clear sense of possibility and the new system incentivizes not only does it create a ideologically and ethnically and every other kind of diversity on the council which is the point of the new system is to get, like, a lot of different perspectives represented on the same council, unlike we have today, Uh, but give them a reason to compromise with each other because of the rank choice Mm -hmm. system. So, like, they've got a political incentive to be friendly rather than a political incentive to hate. So if we can get people finding unusual alliances between, you know, different groups in town who can, like, find things in common and, like, see the common threads and get agreement on stuff, then... I think it'll be uh, an improvement. And I'm also looking forward to having a city council members who are allowed to focus on what they want to focus on. Unlike, you know, you get uh, the lifelong police reform advocate, and Joanne Hardesty, and then she's in charge of the Transportation Bureau. And it's not yeah. that she hates transportation, she's just like, not her thing. <laughs> yeah, right. And then what is she doing for three years? Yeah, that's so yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, there'll be a, some good, strong housing candidates. There's some, yeah. yeah. I feel like we've got a strong field in some of the districts and a less strong field in others. Mm. Okay, I, I, what I sensed
0: there was you not wanting to say No, I'm not saying any, name any names, that's right. You're too, I'm sure you know, you know, you're pretty close to some of the people running, so I can appreciate that. Okay, let's, um, on our way out
1: here, tell me something about the, the bike you came over on. What, what mm. are you riding these days? I'm on a Turn GSD. Every time I go into Clever Cycles, uh, they are like, Man, there are a lot of miles on this thing. I think we were like one of the first folks who <laughs> oh. got the GSD. Nice. And I tugged my seven-year-old around on it a lot. And I just hauled like my dumbbells to the gym so somebody could give me tips on like how to lift them. So And I just threw them in the back and that was fine. <laughs> That's fine. Fu- so okay. I was plugging 100 pounds of dumbbell. I never done that until yesterday. Uh, it's it pretty beat up. Uh, I'm I'm glad I've gotten to the point where my like very expensive e-bike is very beat up and looking authentic now.
0: Well, the question is, it, it's beat up. Is that because you neglected it, or it's well used? Or it's both.
1: Yeah, it's well loved. I'm not the most fastidious okay. person, but right. <laughs> um, I've used it a lot. Yeah,
0: we have that nice bike room too at the we do where you guys live. Yes, is, we have a you know, nice bike barn. So no excuse to
1: not at least keep the chain. The great thing about the the turn and... is the I, of all the things. The party trick of the turn is it can sit on its back oh okay so like for storage for storage yes exactly so i store it on its back which is very useful in our space constrained environment but any garage i think like it's a huge thing to be able to store a long tail horizontally or sorry vertically yeah <laughs> uh yeah and uh i love that yeah good well shoot michael's so good to have you over yeah thanks,
0: thanks for coming by Glad to be here we could do we could do regular housing check-ins as things i happen. would i'd be for it you know awesome thanks cool that was Michael Anderson, a housing researcher at Sightline Institute. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please make sure to subscribe and leave a comment and tell your friends about it uh, and make sure you don't miss any future episodes. Really appreciate all of your support. If you are not a paid subscriber of Bike Portland yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org slash support and find out how you can be a part of what we're doing here and pay a little bit in to keep it thriving, and surviving. I also want to thank Brock Dittis of Sprocket Podcast fame for our wonderful new theme music. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, we'll see you in the streets.